Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning, everybody. Morning. First service, I took a swig of this water. I should not. I went down the wrong pipe, and uh, it was embarrassing. <laughs> My name is Barry Helm. I'm from Lloydminster, not born, but raised in Lloydminster for many, many years, and um, I grew up in this church um, with its programs and, and whatnot. And I've been invited here today to, to speak to you. So let's, let's just open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are present with us in this day, in this moment, in this place. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you. Amen. So the pastoral staff is away this weekend allegedly on a retreat in Canmore. And I've been thinking about this a little bit. I think there, there might be a bit of a conspiracy. So I've put two and two together. A few weeks ago, Ryan buys a lottery ticket as a sermon illustration. Doug is very sensitive to inclement weather. So here's what I think. I think Ryan won that lottery ticket, and they're both in Barbados somewhere, basking on a beach. <laughs> Last time I spoke, I have to apologize, um, it was about a year ago, and the sermon was about 50 minutes long, and that's a long time, I promise it won't be today. But in order for you to keep me accountable, uh, does anyone have an iPhone here? Have an iPhone? Very good. Just raise your iPhone up in the air and repeat after me. Siri, set a timer for 49 minutes. Several years ago, I, I began a project to digitize some of my family's old photos and, uh, and slides. Slides, for you who don't know, are, are little picture things that light shines through and projects them onto a wall. And uh, most of the photos are, are from my dad's side of the family. Uh, he's got most of the photos. My mom says she doesn't like the past. She's a woman of the future, whatever that means. Um, but uh, I came across some very interesting photos of my, of my grandfather and of my dad and, and of my grandmother's family as well. So here's, here's one of them here. Dad, I, I didn't ask you for permission to do this, so I hope you're not too embarrassed. This is my father right here, cute little baby. Um, his mom, Marie, my grandmother, and then Ernest. Um, it looks like my grandfather does not know what to do with this child. <laughs> And a dog. There's a dog in the picture, too. This next picture um, is of Ernest Helm, my, my grandfather, so my dad's dad. And this is, I believe, his brother. I don't know, maybe, I should ask. Uh, his brother, Art, and then someone else. I think that's Elsie. Dad, do you know? It, okay, gotcha. And this lady here? 
Okay, gotcha. Oh, yeah, and then this is my dad's grandfather, Frederick. And here's, here's what they're doing. This is, not, this is an actual photo. This is not posed in some photo studio. Look how cool they are. This is like <laughs> definition of cool. Like, look at the, just this, this hat, and that's, he's got swagger. You probably want, you, I know some of you probably wonder where I get it from. <laughs> Grandpa Helm. The, this next photo is probably one of the oldest ones that I came across here. And this one is, this is my great-grandparents. So these are the parents of my father's mother's father. Is that, do I have that right? Uh, so this is Grandma Helm's, my Grandma Helm's grandparents right here. And this is someone. Um, it says at the bottom, but you can ask maybe my dad later. Picture was taken in 1918. What's interesting about this picture is, is look at this here. He's holding a, a, a Bible in his hands. Likely it wasn't English, it was likely in German. What a legacy. It's very interesting to, to dig into um, some of these photos and family history. Why, why do we have interest in family trees and genealogies and whatnot? I think that knowing where we come from helps us to understand a little bit more about the how and the why we came to be. It helps us to orientate or orient ourselves uh, within the world around us. And even perhaps it shapes our identity, who we are as people. This next photo is a photo of FBC. Have you ever wondered what we're doing here? In this building, at this place in time, sitting with these people in these lovely orange views? And what is church? What is First Baptist Church? Why is it first? And is there a second somewhere? Are they not as good as we are? The building that we're sitting in today uh, was a result of a vision of, um, that several families and individuals held during the 1970s. In the 1970s, the congregation was outgrowing the building that had been erected in 1954. The building is located, it still stands, it's located on 50th Street and 48th Avenue, just across from the men's shelter. It's the Axe Church there, but that used to be the old FBC church. So the congregation was outgrowing that building, and um, the people of FBC gave generously of their time and talents and their money, and some people even donated uh, property to, to build this location. There was an era of excitement, and... Um, I, even as a child, I sensed the enthusiasm of what was going on. The construction of this building was accomplished in late spring of 1980. I was about nine years old, and you're looking at me now, Barry, there's no way that you were born in 1971. I was. Uh, though I was only nine years old, I truly remember how significant that event was. What a change. As a child, we, I was rightfully... I rightfully thought that we need to respect this facility. We were taught that. And I can remember one Sunday uh, after the service, running around in the sanctuary um, and just feeling this firm hand on my shoulder. This is a house of the Lord. Um, and I thought, is, is this really the house of the Lord? Does he have other houses? Does he live here during the week, just on Sundays? I mean, I understand the, the message of that. And and the meaning of that, yes, we need to treat this building with respect. And if you have kids that run around after the service or before the service, I'm okay with that. I'm not condemning anyone at all. If they run around during the service, spare the rod. 
As a preteen, I can remember sitting in these fresh, new padded orange pews. No butts had, on the, had sat on them yet. Fresh. They were much better than the old ones. The old ones in the old church were uh, old wooden pews, and so they were much, much more comfortable. And that was back in the day when, during the church service, what we did was uh, all the kids sat in here. There wasn't really a kid's quest. There was a junior church. So all the kids sat in the service. And then usually it was um, after the offering or maybe just before the offering that kids from grade three and under were dismissed to junior church. And then there was just this big ruckus, um, chaos going out. And then um, the, the rest of us, grade four, unfortunately, had to sit here and listen to the sermon. I remember grade four, it's like, oh man, I wish I was in grade three, I could go to junior church. Lucky them. That being said, I was trained from a young age about proper church decorum, when to sit and when to stand, when to sing and when to be quiet, which is most of the time, how to pass the offering plate, and how to pass the communion juice tray without spilling it. And I was also taught not to put gum in the little offering envelopes and especially not to put it then in the offering plate when it's being passed. It's bad. There used to be an organ sitting here. I don't know where that, that organ is, but I remember as a child looking at, at the organ and just being amazed at all the buttons and the keys and the keyboards and the pedals on the ground. And uh, it's this man, it's like, what? This is incredible. How loud can we turn this things up? What sounds can we do on it? And what would happen if I pressed down on all the keys at once? It was incredible. These are the things I thought about as, as a kid. That, or, that organ was uh, donated by um, George and Ruth Knispel, I believe. They were organ donors. Um, <laughs> I also remember some of the controversy that we had over hymns versus um, other songs, contemporary songs and the controversy over having drums on stage or instruments that used electricity. I cannot remember many sermons. But there was one Sunday that I remember in particular. Um, I was sitting right about here. I won't use the laser pointer because I don't want to shine it in people's eyes, but right around there. I remember sitting, listening to the, the announcements or, or whatnot that were taking place. I was a, a child, probably grade three or four, I'm guessing. And uh, this, this hand reaches around from behind and passes me a little candy, this elderly hand. And it was the elderly hand of Mrs. Peterson giving me this candy. And I was th thought, man, she is nice. I like Mrs. Peterson. So it's, it's just interesting to note that in all the years that I've sat through services as a child, that's one of the very few things that I remember, the kindness showed by Mrs. Peterson. She's no longer with us. So I wonder, here today, are there any kids in grade one? Anyone? Grade two? Most of you are probably in Kids Quest. Grade three? Grade four? Grade five? Grade six? There's some. Grade seven? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. In honor of Mrs. Peterson, I am going to give you who are in grade one, two, three, four, five, six, seven maybe eight and nine, if I have enough of them, a little treat. It's not candy. But I have some notebooks for you, so I'm going to ask my good friend Justin and Logan, do you mind helping out as well? Thank you. So I have 
uh, little journals here, notebooks, and some colorful pens. Uh, so if you are in grade one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight and nine, just put up your hands and these fine young gentlemen will check your driver's licenses to verify your age. <laughs> and you can have these little notebooks. There you go, there's a couple here. There's a shy young lady, don't miss her in the back there. So these books I'm giving to you, first of all, to, as a little to honor Mrs. Peterson and the kindness that she showed. But also, I know that sometimes if you're younger, or maybe older, that sometimes you struggle listening in a church service. That might happen today. So I'm giving you these books, and sometimes it's helpful just to jot notes down. And what I'll do, what I used to do, is just draw pictures of what the speaker or the pastor is talking about. And it made me look like I was like really interested in stuff like that. But that's what I invite you to do. These are your church books, and you can take them home, bring them back with you, and you can draw pictures if you write down thoughts or feelings or anything that has to do with church or whatever you're thinking about. Bring them here. You've got colorful pens. They're yours to keep. Do we have lots left? Are we almost done handing those out? You're good. So all that to say, we've talked about some of the memories that I've had of, of FBC, but we can actually st step back even further in this church's history, way back, way further, into the late 1800s. In the late 1800s, uh, there was an organization called the Union of Baptists. They were a group of pastors, of missionaries, and congregants who had come from eastern Canada, primarily Atlantic Canada and Ontario, as well as from the United Kingdom. They established churches in Manitoba, uh, particularly in Winnipeg and Brandon. And as Western Canada was being opened with uh, new immigrants, uh, settlers, miners, and the expanding railroad, several within the Baptist Union felt the call. They saw a need to expand the church further westward and into these new settlements that were springing up. One of these men was Reverend Colin Campbell McLaurin. Here's a picture of him here. Reverend McLaurin was a pastor in Ontario for 20 years, but he moved to Brandon in about 1897 to pastor a new church there. He pastored that Brandon church for four years when at the Baptist Convention of 1901, it was recognized that someone was needed to assist with the church support, with church support and Western missions. Impassioned by evangelism, Reverend McLaurin took up the challenge. He moved his family to Portage La Prairie, and in, in September of 1901, he took up that call. In 1902 and 1903, he organized and assisted churches in Calgary, Red Deer, Wetaskiwin, Didsbury, and he held evangelistic meetings in uh, Medicine Hat. He helped to establish churches in Saskatoon and Prince Albert. This was all before this area, this area had been developed. It, it was before there was a province of Alberta and Saskatchewan. I want to read to you uh, from a book Reverend McLaurin uh, published in 1939. found this online. This is uh, the account of that, that year of, of 1904. It reads, The great district south and east of Regina was being settled that summer, and another large district between Battleford and Edmonton was occupied by the Barr Colony. An Anglican clergyman named Reverend Barr, assisted by Reverend Hayes Lloyd, brought a shipload of English people who took possession of about 75 miles of territory west of Battleford. 
the Canadian Northern Railway was surveyed through the district. To visit them, a drive of 800 miles with a team was necessary. This was an historic drive. In a Democrat wagon with a team of Broncos, for those of you who do not know what Broncos are, horses. Uh, with a team of Broncos, Billy and Major, the writer drove all the distance to Edmonton, journey, a journey requiring two months. He left the railroad at Cardinuff near Dakota Boundary, following the trails to Regina, followed the railroad to Saskatoon, and then trails, or often no trails, to Edmonton. He camped at night in his wagon, often 20 miles from any other living person. His horses were tethered near the wagon, while coyotes howling on nearby hills like crying children often disturbed sleep and made the horses restless. Often, he had a hearty welcome to the shack of a settler, and tears of gladness expressed appreciation for a season of reading and prayer and for the gift of some Christian literature. In the Bar Colony, he met experiences too numerous to relate here. He met Reverend Mr. Lloyd, uh, the chaplain. Afterwards, he was rector and eventually bishop and head of the Anglican College at Saskatchewan University. Uh, Mr. Reverend Lloyd remarked, The colony is completely Anglican, and there will be no opening for dissenters for a long time. The writer secured for the Baptists in Lloydminster the first lot of any religious body. On this journey, he organized four Baptist churches, so one of which was in Lloydminster. He visited and made acquaintances with many Baptists and learned conditions in such places as Erola, Stoughton, Crake, The Elbow, Radisson, Battleford, Lloydminster, Kitscotty, Vermilion, Innisfree, Vagerville, Lavoie, and Fort Saskatchewan. Arriving in Edmonton in a snowstorm after two months of living in a wagon. During the span of career, this Reverend Colin McLaurin traveled thousands of miles and he ended up establishing over 75 churches. But in June of 1905, after that first journey of 1904, Reverend McLaurin made a return journey from Edmonton to Saskatoon. When in Saskatoon, uh, Reverend McLaurin sent a Bible college student to Lloydminster. This Bible student's name was W.P. Freeman. And you can see him here. There's W.P. Freeman. Also, note the hair. So awesome. Uh, W.P. Freeman helped to organize the Baptist church that summer, pastoring 10 charter members and uh, leading them in services in the old immigration hall in Lloydminster. The, uh, he left after that, and another pastor replaced him and took over, and then that is when the first building um, was built. And that's, that's this, not this building, but that's this people. We, that's part of our, our heritage. W.P. Freeman, after he left Lloydminster, went on to help organize the Baptist... Um, oh, pardon me. W.P. Freeman later went on to become director of education for the Baptist Union in Alberta and Saskatchewan. He led Bible camps arranged Sunday schools, and organized youth events such as rallies and teacher training. Sadly, in 1929, he con contracted influenza and died in hospital on March 2nd of that year. In the Baptist Union's annual report of 1929, it is written of Reverend Freeman. For three and a half years, he was director of Sunday school and young people's work in Alberta and British Columbia, which was a work of love for him 
in which his prophetic vision and sacrificial devotion accomplished gracious and far-reaching results. Many in Western Canada thank God for him, for the beginning and continuing of their Christian life. He was big in stature, mind and soul, and was passionately devoted to his master, whose unclouded horizon he now sees and rejoices as it is. Friends, this, this is our heritage. These are our roots. As I read about the accounts and learn about the accounts of our forebearers, I am moved by their work ethic and their passion and vision. Their vision to establish churches, support other believers, to share the story of salvation. Their vision for children's ministry, for camp, for teaching and training youth. I didn't think youth existed back in the early 1900s. I thought they were all old people. But we are a product of that vision. That vision pivots around the good news of the Messiah. The church is not a building. The church is the community of those who hold to the promises of God of which Jesus is the fulfillment. And these are deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And so that is where I want to take a quick look. We need to step back to the time of Abraham, about 4,000 years ago. There was a man living in the land of Ur. This is modern-day Um, If you could draw a border on here, this would be modern-day Iraq. And God called him. He called him to leave his country, to leave his people, and to leave his father's household. And by doing so, God would make him into a community of nations, and that community would be a blessing to others. In fact, a blessing to the entire world. So this is the route he would have traded along the Euphrates River to Haran. And then this was the land promised to him. It's called the land of Canaan, present-day Israel. Years later, when the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, became slaves to the Egyptian pharaohs, God did not forget his covenant that he made with Abraham. He heard their cry, and he raised up a man named Moses to lead them out of bondage. God freed them and brought them to Mount Sinai. Here's a a woodcut drawing of... an artist's rendering of, of that, that event at Mount Sinai. This is where God met them to make a covenant with the people. The earth trembled and there was smoke and fire and the sound of loud trumpets on the mountain. They shook in fear and the mountain trembled also. Moses went up the mountain and that is where God gave him the Ten Commandments. If the people kept the covenant... They would be God's chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his representatives to the rest of the world. They would be his people, and he would be their God. It was a picture of restoring the fellowship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. We're going to skip forward a few years. Years had passed in the nation of Israel, and their lack of obedience held them back from attaining the fullness of that promised land. They rejected God as king and wanted a king like the nations around them. God had asked them to trust him to be their king. They said, no, 
We want a king like the other nations. So God gave them a king. It was Saul. Saul was okay at first. He was an okay king, but he failed. He disobeyed God and turned away from his commandments. So through the prophet Samuel, another young man was chosen. He was anointed to be king. That young man, his name was David, a young shepherd boy. We're probably familiar with some of the stories that surround his life. David was, for the most part, a great king. He loved and obeyed God. And he was the king by whom all subsequent kings of Israel would be measured against. At near the end of David's life, um, God makes a covenant with David. And we can see that here in 1 Chronicles 17. When your days are over, and this is God um, speaking through the prophet Nathan to, to David. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him before my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Soon after David's reign and then his son Solomon's reign, things start, started to fall apart. There was a civil war and a rebellion that, that split the nation of Israel into two, essentially two nations, the northern nation, Israel, and the southern nation, Judah, each of which decided to have their own kings. First and second kings traces the stories of these kings and, and the, what the people did during the times and the interactions with some of the prophets that tried to warn Israel. In First and Second Kings, we read about how some of the kings, not many, were good. They followed God's commands. Most were not good. They turned away from God and followed in the ways of other nations around them. Moses had warned the people about this, and the prophets warned the people about this, that if you do not obey, God is going to take you out of this land and force you into exile. In 722 BCE, um, that came. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire. The people were taken into exile. If you don't know what exile is, it's a forced deportation. I have a map here of, of the region of that world at that time. So here, here's the, the nation of Israel, and what is here is there's an overlay of present-day countries. So Assyria would have included Turkey, Syria, Iraq, a little bit of Iran as well. That is the region that the, Syrian, that the um, Assyrians had force and influence in. And you can see here the land of Canaan, the orange here is the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah in white here. And so this empire came and started um, deporting the people. It's interesting to note here, and this is just a side note, I know that I've got to go quickly here, but there are sources other than what's in the Bible that attest to um, king, the, the kings of Assyria is what they've done. There's actually records written in clay of kings who say, I went to Lachish, one of the cities in Israel, and we laid siege to it, and we carried them away. And there's, there's pictures of it. So, 
The southern kingdom lasted for several more decades, but it too fell, and the people were exiled to Babylon. And Babylon was the, the kingdom that replaced the Assyrian kingdom. And their prized temple and their city was destroyed in 596 BCE. And here's uh, just a painting, the flight of the exiles. The writer of Kings sums it up well. If you are reading First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, wondering what is going on, what is the main point, turn to Second Kings 17, 7 to 20, and you'll find it in here. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets, but they would not listen. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. So here's a brief timeline uh, of what we just whipped through here couple thousand years of history. So I'll point out some of the events. So in here, right around 1000 BC, here's the reign of David. I know this isn't very clear. Um, you might not be able to read it from where you're sitting. Um, and this is where the kingdom divides in 931 BC, the northern kingdom, if you follow this line. And right around here, about 722, that's where the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom into exile. If you trace the line of the southern kingdom, in 586, uh, Judah and the and Jerusalem fell in 586 to the Babylonians. This is a great uh, timeline, and it might be helpful um, for you as you're doing your studying and reading, but it lists all the kings of the, the Northern Empire in their timelines, and all the kings of the Southern Empire. And what's cool about this is that it overlays the ministries of the prophets during that time too. So if you're reading, let's say, the book of Ezekiel, it's like, okay, Ezekiel took place right close to the end of the the Babylonian, um, Babylonian exile. So that's a summary. But there was hope. There was always hope. Though the kings failed and the people were now in exile, there was hope. Even Moses knew this. He prophesied in Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 and 4, that if they turned their hearts back toward God, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. And the prophet Jeremiah writes of a new covenant that we replace the one that was broken by Israel. That was the covenant broken, uh, the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah writes, Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. It's Jeremiah 31.10 and verses 31 to 34. And the prophet Isaiah writes about God's coming salvation. An anointed one, a Messiah, would bring healing and redemption. This is found in Isaiah 61 to 3. And the word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word. It sounds like uh, Mashiach. It simply means anointed one or chosen one. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, I need to pause here. Some of you may recognize this if you have read through the book of Luke. I believe it's in Luke chapter 4. Jesus was asked to speak in one of the synagogues. And on that day, his first reading, he turns to the book of Isaiah and reads this portion of Scripture. He, in reading that, claimed to be this, the anointed one. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus is the anointed one of David's line, the Messiah. Consider this. Let's make, connect a few dots here. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus uh, goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. Uh, John the Baptist resists a little bit, but he says, I will baptize. So Jesus is baptized, baptized comes out of the water, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Compare that to this line from the, the covenant given to David in 1 Chronicles 17. Note the similarities. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him. Do you see the connection there? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is also the new covenant, fulfilling the old covenant of Moses and ratifying a new one. The nation of Israel was brought out of their bondage in Egypt and were then established as the people of God through the covenant at Sinai, as we receive in, uh, in Exodus 24. So this is the, the, the covenant at Sinai that Moses um, said to the people. He said, he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Compare this uh, 
to what happens at the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. So this is the, the, the night where Jesus was betrayed just before he was crucified on the cross. He is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And this is, is what happens, Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant made with David. He established a new covenant, and this is a covenant where he calls a new people, his assembly, his community, his church, those who believe. And it is that community, the ones that Jesus calls through his covenant of the blood, that are of the community and through whom the world will be blessed. What rules does this new community need to follow? In the Old Testament, we see in Exodus how they were required under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant to follow the Ten Commandments and a whole list of rules. So this new covenant, the one under Jesus, what were they commanded? What was the commandment they were instructed to follow? We read in John uh, 15, 12. This is Jesus speaking. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And how do we gain access to this new covenant? How do we participate? How do we become part of this divine community, this community of Jesus? Believe. Those who believe inherit eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That, my friend, is good news. The author of um, the book of Hebrews ties a lot of things together quite nicely in Hebrews 12. Here in Hebrews 12... um, the writer of, of Hebrews is calling to mind the, 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 the Mosaic Covenant, that Mount Sinai gathering where God chose his assembly, where God chose his people, to that trembling, thundering, loud, fire, thunder, I said thunder twice, mountain. It reads, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that, they would, that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. 
The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, those whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. God is a consuming fire. This is the conclusion today. The church is not a physical building of brick and wood and steel and stone and carpet and orange pews. It is the people of God. It is a community that is not bound by four walls. It is a community not bound by geopolitical borders. It is a community that regards no denominational barriers. It is a community of those who seek first the kingdom of God. It is a community of those with a passion for the good news of Jesus. It is a community of those who see their lives through the lens of eternity. It is a community of those who center their lives around the kingdom of God. It is a community that encompasses all those who believe and through all time. It is a community of those who recognize that the things of this world will pass away. It is a community of those who prioritize their lives in accordance with God's kingdom. It is a community of people rooted in the promises of God and their fulfillment in Jesus. The church operates differently than the world does. God's people. The church operates within a divine economy, the currency of which is neither monetary nor political capital, but rather it is faith. The currency of the kingdom of God is faith. The commodities of that kingdom are love, kindness, mercy, self-control, humility, wisdom, peace, and joy. The kingdoms of humankind and their political and economic systems will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is eternal. The message of Jesus, come, participate freely in the divine kingdom. I have paid your way. And the church is the emissary of that good news, the messenger delivering the invitation to become citizens of a good and divine an enduring kingdom. I'm going to ask you to stand with me to pray together. We'll pray this out loud together. I know we don't do it very often. Father, you invite us to participate in your kingdom 
Let us accept that invitation with joy and hope. And may your kingdom root itself in our lives, guiding our vision, guiding our decisions. May it color us with love for you and for one another. May us perfect as you are perfect. Make us holy as you are holy. Convert our worthless gold and silver into kingdom treasure. Establish the work of our hands. For your glory, may it be so. You may be seated. And you're dismissed. Thank you for having me.